Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you this morning uh, as we gather for worship. If uh, you are new, if you're a guest or a visitor with us this morning, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. And uh, it's, I'm glad that we could worship together this morning and we didn't have to cancel. So thanks to all the people who got here very early to make sure that uh, the walkways were cleared and safe. Uh, I, I hate canceling worship, <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm glad we didn't have to this morning, and my, the Canadian in me just, it's just hard for me not to get out, <laughs> even when there's a little bit of snow, so, um, so thank you for, uh, for coming out. Um, but we are, uh, we are here to worship our God and to sit under his word, and the portion of his word that we're going to be looking at comes from Matthew 26 this morning, uh, Matthew 26, so I'm sure all of us are well aware that next Sunday is Easter, and so uh, historically throughout the church, uh, the, the churches, those churches that have observed the church calendar uh, mark this day as Palm Sunday. Now, we, we don't make a big deal out of the church calendar here, but, but some of them we, we mark, and, and so uh, often the church has celebrated Jesus' triumphal entry on this Sunday as preparation for Easter to celebrate his resurrection uh, next Sunday, and and while it's true that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, uh, next Sunday we will be focusing uh, concertedly on a resurrection text. But before we get there, we need to see how Jesus gets to the cross. Um, the darkness of the cross precedes the light of Easter morning, and so this morning we're going to look at the account of Jesus's arrest. Uh, his arrest and his trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. And so, if you would follow along, Matthew 26, uh, it's printed there in your order of service if you don't have a Bible. While he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled." Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two men came, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would lead us in the way that we are to go. Open our eyes and allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing to you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, a week ago, um, Kat and Lane were away for a night, just the two of them, and so Cole and Mead and I were uh, left to decide how we were going to spend this one evening, just the three of us. And, and it was really an easy decision for all three of us. Uh, we were going to finally complete The Lord of the Rings. We had been waiting and waiting for many months for just to be the three of us. And so we had watched the first two episodes, first two uh, parts of The Lord of the Ring many months ago, but we were waiting for this opportunity when it was just the three of us and we had four hours to kill. <laughs> Uh, because the only way to watch The Return of the King is the extended version. So, so we sat down, and three and a half, four hours later, we, we had seen orcs and elves and, and hobbits and, and men and magicians and all those different creatures that are part of the Lord of the Rings, and it was a wonderful four hours. It was wonderful. It drew us in. We love this story. The story, you know it, the story of evil trying to conquer the land of Middle-earth to put it under the cloak of darkness. And, and the only way for Middle Earth, Earth and all the inhabitants of this land to be saved is for the Ring of Power to be destroyed. And so the Ring of Power comes to Frodo, this little hobbit, this halfling, who, who is in this wonderful little garden town, the Shire, and he is to take the ring out of this place. And he thinks that all he has to do is get it to the elves. Remember, to Rivendell, to Elrond. And once Elrond, the, the chief elf, has it, then it will be safe. And evil will be, will be kept at bay. And so he sets off on his journey. Not thinking that it will be that difficult. He just has to get to Rivendell. When he arrives, you remember what happens. Elrond says, the ring cannot stay with us. The time of the elves is coming to an end. Their power is ceasing, and so the ring has to go on. And so now Frodo, with his other hobbit friends, and, and now an elf and a dwarf and men and a magician, they set off again to try and save Middle-earth. This road that only seemed to be long is now filled with battle and betrayal. It's filled with accusation and misunderstanding. And eventually, they find abandon. Frodo and Sam, near the very end, they are left alone. It is just the two of them in this land of Mordor, this land where there is no joy or sun, a land that is desolate and dry and full of ash. They are by themselves in the darkness on their way to seek salvation. Salvation that hadn't been easy but actually had been torturous. You know, as we sat there watching the final scenes of The Return of the King, 
as Frodo and Sam are approaching Mount Doom and they are trying to bring salvation to Middle Earth, I cannot help but think that the way of salvation is very similar to the path that our salvation took. Not a path that was difficult and strained for us, a path that wasn't carefree and easy, but was heavy and burdensome, but heavy and burdensome not on us, but on Christ. You know, as I watch those final minutes as they're approaching Mount Doom, the place where salvation would come, I can't help but think of what Christ went through. You see, it's easy for us to think of our salvation as something that is glorious and brilliant, and it is that. And it's easy for us to think of our salvation that is freely offered from Christ as being something that is life-giving and joyful, and it absolutely is that, but it is not only those things. You see, the way to salvation, the glory of Easter morning, the path of salvation is marked by darkness. The darkness of Christ's arrest and his crucifixion. And in this passage, what we're seeing is that that road to Christ's cross, it is a road that is marked by betrayal. It is a road that is marked by accusation. It is a road that is marked by abandon. That's what our passage tells us. We see the betrayal immediately with Judas. But, but there's something about his betrayal that is fascinating that maybe sometimes we miss because we're culturally disengaged from this time. Look at verse 49. We're told that the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Now, at first, this might seem as though Judas is simply giving a sign, and it is absolutely a sign to the mob to take hold of Jesus, that this is the one. But, but it's more than that. Judas is dishonoring the Lord in this act. You see, there's a Jewish scholar named Moses Oberbach who makes a very insightful observation. He tells us that during this time, in this culture, uh, the, a group of teacher and disciples that if the disciple would come to his teacher and would initiate this sort of greeting or welcome to him without the teacher inviting it, it implied equality. So the, the, te- the student or the, the disciple was to wait until he was invited to come. And yet that's not what Judas does. And so Oberbach says that this was not only a repudiation of his relationship with Jesus, but it was a signal to the mob and also a studied insult. You see, this differs from when the disciples would come and ask Jesus questions of understanding, of knowledge, because even as they did that, they were submitting themselves to Jesus' teaching. But what Judas is doing here is he is putting himself on par with the Lord. He's insulting him. But the betrayal goes even deeper. It's not simply an insult. He is actually stabbing Christ in the back. Look at verses 47 and 48. Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Now almost every single time in the Gospels when Judas is mentioned, He's spoken of as Judas, one of the twelve, or Judas, who was of the number of the twelve. Almost every single time he is mentioned, he is mentioned with that 
descriptor, that he is part of Jesus' 12, his disciples. It's as though the gospel writers want us to make sure every time we hear the name Judas, we remember that he is one of his disciples. Judas simply isn't one of the crowd. He isn't just one of the religious leaders. He's not one of those who opposed Jesus' ministry from the very beginning. No, he was one of his disciples. Now, for those of us who are familiar with this story, we just kind of pass that over. Right? We, oh yeah, Judas was one of the 12, but we keep moving on. We, we've become so familiar with it, we don't let that sink in. He was one of his followers. I mean, think about that. Judas had heard Jesus say, come, follow me. Judas had heard Jesus' teaching firsthand. He had witnessed the miracles by Jesus' own hand. He had been one of his followers. But now this follower was a betrayer. I mean, how wicked and evil is that? That he would turn his back on the Lord. The follower became a betrayer, and he did so for 30 pieces of silver. We know how evil this is. To have someone who says that they care about us, they love us, they are our friend to turn on us. Kids, it's like in the movie Wonder. I know some of you have seen the movie Wonder. A lot of you have probably read the book. Remember this wonderful story about Augie, this little boy who's been who's been homeschooled until he gets to middle school. Now his parents are sending him to middle school, and he shows up at this new school, and he doesn't know anyone. He has no friends. He hasn't met his teacher. He doesn't know where he's supposed to go. He's alone. But to make matters worse, you remember Augie has facial deformities. And so the other children, they laugh at him, and they mock him behind his back, and sometimes they mock him right to his face. And they treat him poorly. And they draw back, they pull away when he comes near, and he's left alone until Jack comes. Do you remember Jack? This sweet little tender-hearted boy who sees beyond the differences in Augie, and he sees that this is a little boy who's full of joy and is smart. He's, he's fun to be around, and, and he's got a wonderful heart, and so Jack befriends him. But then Halloween comes. And Jack is sitting in the classroom, and he's talking with his other friends, friends who haven't seen the beauty of Augie's heart, who only see his distorted face. And they sit there, and they ask Jack, how can you be friends with that guy? And Jack looks around, and he doesn't see Augie because he's wearing his mask, you remember? And so he's hidden. He looks around and not and convinced that Augie isn't there. He says, oh, I just pretend to be his friend. Unaware that Augie has heard those very words. And he turns and he runs from the classroom weeping. It's a horrible display of betrayal. That he would turn to his friend, he would, he would stab his friend in the back. That he would disassociate with him as soon as he felt pressure from others. It's a horrible display of betrayal. And yet, as bad as that was, what Judas did on this night was a million times worse. Because Judas was handing over the king of the universe to death. He betrayed him. 
He insulted him. And yet, how did Christ respond? What does he say in verse 50? Friend, do what you came to do. Jesus doesn't flee from the betrayal. He embraces it. He takes it on upon himself. He embraces it. He knew that the way to his cross was going to be marked by betrayal. But it's not just betrayal. It's also marked by accusation. Jesus is arrested. He's handed over to Caiaphas. He's brought before the scribes and the elders, and they seek to bring false testimony, but they couldn't find any false testimony. So in this day, there had to be two witnesses. And what it seems like is that they couldn't get two people to to come up with the same lies to be able to bring witness against Jesus. They couldn't find false testimony until they find two men in verse 61 who come and say, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, Jesus did say something similar to that in John 2. You remember in John 2, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. But Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. He wasn't talking about brick and mortar. He was talking about the temple of his body. That he would, in fact, die and be buried, but three days later he would rise again. But now his words are being manipulated. They're being misunderstood in order that the religious leaders might bring charges against him. And that's what they do in verses 62 and following. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, I want us to note the irony of what the high priest said. The irony that that he is invoking the name of God in order to elicit a response from God himself. I mean, think about that. He, He is actually using the breath that God has given him to breathe in order to breathe out threats against God. And the irony of this is totally lost on the high priest. Ignoring who it is that he's talking to or unaware of who Jesus is, when he hears Jesus' reply, you have said so, he responds in verse 65. The high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Now, if you're new to the scriptures, maybe if you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian and, and you're, not, you're not sure what the big deal is here. I mean, like really, Jesus simply said, yeah, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. Like what, what is the big deal? Why would they bring threats of death upon him for this? Well, the reason is because Though though the irony of speaking to God in this way was lost on the high priest, the implications of what Jesus said is not lost on him. You see, when Jesus says that he is the Son of Man, he's invoking this title that was given by Daniel about the Messiah to come. And this is the the primary title that Jesus gives himself. This is his favorite way of expressing himself, the Son of Man. And so he's saying that the Messiah that Daniel was talking about, I am he. And then when he says that I will sit at the right hand of power, he's saying that I will have the place of greatest prominence in the entire universe. I will sit at the right hand of God, the place that is reserved for David's greater son. 
That Jesus is saying, I am the eternal king who will sit on David's throne forever. I will come in glory and in power. What he is saying is that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, who shares in the very divine nature of the Father. Jesus is making an ontological statement about his being. That he is the eternal king, and this is not lost on the high priest. That's why he tears his robes, which is a symbol of grief or uncontrollable rage. And he calls Jesus a blasphemer. You see, the high priest understood that if what Jesus says is false, he is a blasphemer. He is actually speaking blasphemy against God. And you see, those are our only two options when we look to who Jesus is. Those are our only two options. If Jesus' claim was true, then he is the eternal king. But if what he said is false, then he is a blasphemer who should be cursed. And so maybe you're here this morning, and you came because you're trying to understand who Jesus is. Maybe you're here because this is the season of Easter, and this is the time for when people come, and we think about Jesus' death and resurrection. So you're trying to figure out what you think about Christ. When you think of him, you probably think of him as a great teacher and a moral leader. I mean, even the most secular, non-religious people, they, they claim that about Christ, right? He was, he was a good man. He taught well. He was a moral example that should be followed. But the truth is, is that if he isn't who he says he is, if he is not the Messiah, then he's not a moral teacher. He is a liar. So those are your options. A blasphemer who is lying or the Lord of heaven? Those are your options. So you have to determine, is Caiaphas' false accusation the way that we are to go? Or Christ's truthful statements that he is the eternal king? You see, friends, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, He truthfully proclaims that he is the son of man who shares the divine nature of the father. It means that our only response should be to fall before him and say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. To fall before him and joyfully submit to his rule, not to falsely accuse him of blasphemy, but to follow after him. To claim you are indeed David's greater son. You are the son of man who Daniel spoke of. You are the eternal king deserving of all of our allegiance. Don't make the same mistake that Caiaphas made and the elders and the scribes. Fall before him, submitting to him, declaring that he is your king. So we've seen that Jesus' way to the cross, it's marked by betrayal and it's marked by accusation, but finally, it's marked by abandonment. He's abandoned, and who abandons him? Well, it's his disciples. Now, his disciples actually talk a really good game, don't they? In Matthew 26, earlier, after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Do you remember Peter's response? I love Peter. Love here. I just told the elders and the deacons this past week at our meeting that that I love Peter because I see myself in Peter and I see us in Peter. 
right? He's so impetuous and he's, he's so brazen and confident in himself. He's so courageous, right? So what does he say? You will all fall away. And he says, uh-uh. <laughs> they may all fall away because of you, but I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then the other disciples, not to be outdone by Peter, right, were told that, that they too said, no, we will never leave. We will never depart. We will never flee. Even if it means going to the place of death, we will never abandon you, Jesus. And they looked pretty good at first, didn't they? I mean, granted, they did fall asleep in the garden when Jesus said, stay up and watch and pray with me. But I mean, come on, it was a late night. It's not that bad, right? I mean, when the soldiers come with their clubs and they're ready to arrest Jesus, what do they do? They take action, right? We're told in verse 51 that one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, the Gospel of John tells us that this one was Peter. And so Peter's looking pretty good, right? When, when the people came to take Jesus, he's ready to defend him. He's ready to go to war and to battle. He draws his sword and he's ready to fight. But then Jesus says, sheath your sword. And I can imagine that as Peter put his sword back, as he put it away, that, that the courage, the fortitude, the, the brazenness just kind of falls out of him. It just melts away because his understanding of what it would mean to go to his death to follow Jesus is very different than what Jesus is saying. It doesn't mean taking up arms and going to war. It means willingly submitting to arrest and death. And so he puts away his sword. And Jesus was seized by soldiers and arrested under a cloak of darkness. And all his disciples... All those who said that they would go with him to his death, they left him and fled. I'm sure Peter followed, but he followed at a distance. That's what we're told, so as not to associate with Jesus. So, so he wouldn't be confused as one of his followers. And we know that in a few short hours, he would deny Jesus three times, even to a little girl. You see, those who declared so confidently they would go with their Lord to his death, when the time of trial came, they abandoned him. And Jesus went to his trial, and he was mocked and spat upon and ridiculed, and he went to the cross, and he died, and he did it alone. He was abandoned. Now, before we pour it on Peter and the disciples... We have to acknowledge the fact that I'm no better. And neither are you. That we were not there on that night, but, but how many times have we abandoned Christ in our places of work and with our classmates? When our faith has been challenged, how many times have we very quietly held our tongues rather than defending the name of the Lord? of pursuing what is right and good. I too have abandoned him. I mean, we even sing that in that song, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. See, the truth is, is that in those situations, 
we feel and act an awful lot like Peter and the other ten disciples that abandoned him on that night. And yet Jesus takes this on. He didn't, he didn't have to go to his death in abandonment. I mean, he actually said it, didn't he? Peter, put away your sword. Do you not think that I could bring down a whole legion of angels? I could call on my father to send angels of armies down upon these people. That's what he said. I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion of Roman soldiers was about 6,000 men. And so Jesus is saying, I could call over 70,000 angels to come and destroy these people. I do not have to go to my death on my own. I can make war and wipe them out. And I can show that I am the king, but Jesus doesn't do that. He embraces the abandonment. He takes it upon himself, and he makes it clear that his kingdom will not be advanced by the sword. That salvation does not come for his people, for those who abandoned them, him, for those who left him that night. It does not come to them or for us by taking up the sword, but instead by Christ taking the sword upon himself. And in a few hours, that's exactly what he would do. He would go to the cross, and he would take upon himself death and sin and judgment. He would take the sword upon himself. Now, you know, in the return of the king, at the very end, Frodo and Sam is there approaching Mount Doom, the place where only salvation would come, that mountain that they would have to climb, that hill that they would have to ascend to bring salvation to Middle Earth. As they are approaching that mountain, they realize that they are out of water. And if they keep going forward, they will never return home. That if they keep going forward, it will certainly mean their own death. And yet, instead of turning in the face of death and trying to spare their own lives, they go on. They go on through the darkness and through the heat. They're willing to die in order that their home and their friends may be saved. They were willing to die for the sake of saving others. It's a wonderful story. It's an amazing story. But as good as the story as it is, the gospel is an even better story. It is a true story of one who did not just be willing to die, but who actually did die. Twice in our passage, once to Peter and once to his captors, Jesus said that all of this took place so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. All of this took place so that the Son of Man, the King of the universe, would be betrayed and accused and abandoned. All of this took place so that before there would be the brightness of Easter morning, there would be the darkness of the cross, a darkness when Christ would go to his death so that we, who were once his enemies, so that we who have abandoned him, so that those who turned their back on him that night would be saved. Christ went to the darkness of the cross to bring us out of the darkness of death and sin and hell and the grave so that we would be saved. Amen. Father, I do pray that you would impress upon us 
the beauty of the gospel, that you, Lord Jesus, did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but you took on flesh. You lived amongst us. You, you humbled yourself by going to the cross. And for the joy set before you, you endured it, scorning its shame that we would have salvation, that we would be saved, that you would bring us out of death into life, that you would do what no one else could do, that you would take the wrath of God upon yourself, that you would take our sin and it would be nailed to the cross, that we would have life. And so we call you our God. We fall before you and say, my Lord and my God, help us this day to worship you. Help us tomorrow to honor you. Help us all of our days to follow you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray and God's people said, Amen.